Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans chapter 3 says this. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, whew, bit of a doozy, this chapter. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would... Ready us, prepare us for what you have to say to us, prepare us for what you have in store for us. 
Lord, I pray that this morning there would be a, a sense of honesty, maybe even a sense of vulnerability here in this room. Lord, meet us where we are. Speak to us in a language we understand as only you can. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series that is working through this book of Romans. And while we believe as Christians that every single book in the entirety of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is equally significant, is equally helpful, is equally important in teaching us about who God is and who we are in his story, his redemptive story here in the world, it is very easily argued that the book of Romans has had more of a significant impact on Christians and on the church than any other book. The Apostle Paul is working out his theology, his doctrine about who Jesus is, who we are to God, the role that we have to play in Christ's story. Last week... Pastor Russ Siders from Sunrise Community Church introduced us all to this concept that he called total depravity, that each and every one of us is affected, is tainted in some way, shape, or form by sin. If you, no matter how hard we try, we are all affected some way, shape, or form by evil. We all miss the mark. We all fall short of God's glory of what his plan and his expectation is for each and every one of us. We are all equally broken. Today, as we continue to work through Paul's argument here in Romans 3, we're going to hear a little bit more of the same, and then we're going to be left with, thankfully, we're going to be left with some hope. And we're going to touch on what that hope is in a minute, But we're also going to spend some time, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at what our human reaction, our human response is to that hope that Paul lays out. And our reaction goes something like this. Yeah, but... That's our human response to Paul's, to the hope of the gospel that Paul lays out for us here. Yeah, but we're going to look at three different yeah buts that we all can live into, that I think we all have lived into or are living into right now. Yeah, but I'm already here. Yeah, but I'm close. And yeah, but I'm too far away. I'm already here, I've already arrived, I'm so close, and I'm too far away. Now maybe you've noticed uh, over not only listening to this passage, and again, I I know this is kind of tough to follow, but this passage and last week's passage that the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome at the very beginning of the church some 1900 and change years ago, he's talking a lot about everybody's favorite topic, circumcision. I know that many of us come to church with an expectation, a hope maybe even, that we will hear about circumcision and why it matters. So if that's why you came to church today, you are in luck. 
because that's what Paul is talking about ad nauseum here. Circumcision. In the Western world, in the year 2023, kind of commonplace. We don't really think too much of it. 2,000 years ago, and 1,000, 1,500, 1,800 years before that, big, big, big deal. Okay? If you were circumcised, that meant one thing and one thing only. You were a Jew. Okay? One thing and one thing only. You were a Jew. Only one group in that ancient Near Eastern world would do such a thing to their baby boys on the eighth day of their life. And it all goes back, this circumcision all goes back to this thing that God establishes with this guy named Abraham. The book of Genesis, this guy named Abraham, God says to him, your descendants will be my people and I will be your descendants God. We've talked about this a lot over the last several weeks. He creates a covenant, which is like a partnership, a contract, an agreement, right? Two sides agreeing to do the same thing towards the same goal. Abraham, you need to worship me. You need to follow me. You need to obey me. In exchange, I will make you fruitful. I will make you a father of nations. I will allow your people to succeed and thrive. What is the marker, what is kind of this, no pun intended, the skin in the game of this contract, of this covenant? Well, God explains it in Genesis 17 a little bit further down. In verses, I believe, 10 to 14, God says this to Abraham. He says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Big, big deal, okay? If you want to belong to your family, if you want to belong to your community, if you want to belong to society, if you don't want to be an outcast, in Jewish culture, you have to be circumcised. And women identified themselves, as hard as this might be to hear, their status within society was completely predicated on their father if they were unmarried and their husband if they were married. So if their father, if their husband wasn't circumcised, they themselves too would be complete outcasts. Okay, Big, big deal. Now, fast forward a little bit towards where the Roman Empire has control over the nation of Israel. This is the time when Jesus lives. This is the time when Paul lives, right? The Roman Empire has complete control over ancient Israel. Now, what did the Roman Empire value? Romans valued the human body. They valued athleticism. They valued holding the ideal of what the human body was capable of. That meant that there were bathhouses, there were gymnasiums, there were athletic competitions, all of which happened in the nude. This is what happened in the Roman Empire. What would this mean for this small group of people who had this physical marker that nobody else had competing in athletic competitions without any clothing on? 
They were ridiculed. They were made fun of. They were ostracized. They were uh, lowered to like the rungs of society. They were moved down, whether in word or in deed. You might have been a Roman citizen, but you're going to get laughed at. You're going to get mocked. You're going to be derided. You might even be abused. Now, what did this instill within the Jewish people? And again, this is the time when Jesus lived. This is the time when the Apostle Paul lived. It instilled something that had already been instilled within the Jewish people for centuries before. You might mock me. You might beat me up. You might laugh at me. You might make fun of me. But we'll see who has the final laugh. I belong to God. I belong not only to God, I belong to the Lord God. I belong to the God of my ancestors. And he's going to come someday and he's going to make all of you pay for holding us in captivity, for ruling over us. Creates a sense of spiritual superiority. I don't care what you say about me. I'm first in God's eyes. I'm first in the kingdom of God. I'm going to be first in heaven. I matter way more than you do in the scope of eternity. A spiritual superiority. Now what happens with this spiritual superiority, when this guy Jesus comes on the scene, this guy who's a great teacher, who's referred to as rabbi, who's given respect and prestige, and he begins to not only spend time with both Jews and non-Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles, he spends time with everybody. He not only spends time and teaches both Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised alike, but he actually breaks bread with them. He actually eats with them. The greatest honor that there is in Jewish culture, in Jewish society, he's spending time at the same table as Jews and Gentiles, those dirty, disgusting, unholy, unrighteous Gentiles. Are you serious? What do you do when that enters into the fray? And then you have this guy, Paul, who's going to say that we're all equal in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. What, what happens to your spiritual superiority? Does it just disappear overnight? No, of course not. There's still this part of you that's like, yeah, fine. You know what? I'll eat with them. I'll pray with them. I'll spend time with them. But if you think I'm still not first, you've got another thing coming. Now, in Jewish culture, that sense of spiritual superiority, it would mean you were circumcised. It would mean you could trace your lineage back to David and Abraham before him. It means you ate the right foods. It means you always obeyed the law. What, what does that look like today? Has, has that sense of spiritual superiority disappeared in the church? Jesus died for your sins. No, yeah, that's cool, but well, do I really need that? I mean, I go to church, was raised in a Christian home. I, I've never really harmed anybody. I volunteer a lot. Uh, my parents were Christians. I might have even gone to a, a Christian school. I went to Sunday school a lot. No, Jesus died for your sins. That, that changes everything. Yeah, but 
No, I'm kind of already there, though. Right? I've, kind of, I, I've really kind of checked everything off that you need to check off. I mean, even, I tithe. I sit on boards, okay? No, you don't understand. That isn't what Christianity is about. That isn't what this new religion is about at all. It's all about this guy who died for you, this guy who was the son of God. Yeah, no, I get that, and I, I understand that that's important. We've got to talk about that at Easter, and you're going to yell at us outside and everything. But really, I'm good, okay? I'm going to keep Jesus over here in the box where he belongs on Sundays, and, and I'm going to keep living my life how I want to. I've got a good track record. I've got my spiritual checklist. I'm, I'm solid. Paul is writing to this very mentality that was as alive in the Jews at the very beginning of the church hundreds of years ago as it is today. And Paul acknowledges that if you had a background of, uh, that would breed a sense of spiritual superiority, if you prayed before meals, if you heard the gospel, if you heard the Bible your whole life, then you do have an enormous advantage And you should be more humbled, you should be more aware of your need for a Savior than anybody else. He says in verse 2, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. If you grew up in the church, if you have those advantages, that's a huge deal. But just like Paul is speaking to the Jews in the church in Rome, so he is speaking to us. If we think that that spiritual checklist is all that we need, if we just need to check stuff off of a list and we're good and we can live our lives however we want to, we have another thing coming. Jesus died for your sins, yeah, but I was sort of already there. I'm good. I've already arrived. And what Paul says here is, if that's what you think, then no, you haven't. And no, you're not. Second group of people that Jesus is speaking to here begins with a, with a personal confession. Okay? It's been weighing on my shoulders for quite some time. Some of you have had the bravery to actually confront me about this, to speak to me directly about this, but I think it's time that we just kind of get it all out on the table for all of us, get it off my chest. My wife is a better person than me. It's true, okay? It feels really good to finally be able to admit that, get the monkey off of my chest. We can cancel the intervention. My wife, she's a better person than me. She just is, okay? And nowhere is that more apparent that if you know my wife, then you know she has an enormous heart, not only to serve, but especially to serve those who are down on their luck, who are walking through difficulties, who are walking through struggles. And that has taken the form, in the last couple years in particular, of a wonderful ministry called Care Portal. Care Portal is a tool that allows the church to help meet the needs of kids, of families, of guardians who are connected to the foster care system in some way, shape, or form. Now, what does that mean for my life practically? It means I haven't been able to park my car in my garage for the last two plus years because it's usually full of mattresses and box springs and bed frames and sheets and all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. And that's where kind of the confession joking part of it ends. 
Because the actual confession is that over the last couple years, when my wife Claire has asked me to help, has asked me to aid her in delivering things, in doing my best job to translate when somebody only speaks Spanish, whatever it might be, there's this deep, deep part of me that, if I'm honest, doesn't, doesn't want to. And that's especially awful because I have been there when you see a single mom of three beautiful kids break down in sobs because she has the mattresses required to allow her to hold on to her children. I've seen people break down in tears, in gratitude for being prayed over, desperate, desperate to know that they are loved by God. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've experienced it. I've been a part of it. It's remarkable. And that is what eats away at me when I respond with, man, I don't want to help. It makes me feel really lousy. It makes me feel like a bad Christian. It makes me feel like a bad husband. It makes me feel like a bad man. And then this amazing thing happens. The human ego is remarkable because just as I'm starting to feel lousy enough to inspire some kind of change in my heart, this other voice, like the air conditioner, when you can hear it humming before it kicks on all the way, starts to rattle around in the back of my mind. And then it kicks on and that air starts flowing. And I think, I don't need to do this. I was a professional Christian all day. You expect me to be a volunteer Christian tonight? Expect me to go to Walmart on a Wednesday night at 9 o'clock? Man, I prayed over people today. I counseled people. I spent time in the Word of God. I mean, look, I'm not perfect. I'm not Superman. I'm not a superhuman. Who is? I'm okay. I don't need to go do that tonight. If you ask somebody on the street, what's, what's going to happen to you when, they, when you die? If you are an evangelist, a street evangelist, and you ask that question, in all likelihood, whether you find a Christian or not, you're going to ha- get an answer that goes something like this. I've been a pretty good person my whole life. Never killed anybody, paid my taxes, tried to be a good spouse. I tried to be a good parent. I did the best that I possibly could. Am I perfect? No, Who's perfect? But I did a pretty good job. I did the best I could. So what happens when I die? Well, I don't know if I believe in this whole heaven and hell thing, but hopefully something pretty good. I mean, I don't deserve anything bad. I did the best I could. I I was close. I was close to being truly good. See, what's hard about that is that 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 sounds good and that that sounds appealing and that sounds kind of humble. But what Paul says here is that close doesn't cut it. He says in verses 22 and 23, he begins by saying that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you think you're good, whether you think you're close, whether you're somewhere in between, you have fallen short. This is what Pastor Russ was talking about last week. And then in verses 10 to 12, uh, Paul continues to kind of 
hammer it down on this, what I believe is one of the hardest doctrines to swallow in the entirety of the Bible. There's the social stuff and kind of the hot-button topics, and then there's the reality that close is not close enough. He's quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I'm 50% there. I'm 60% there. If you're 99% there, you're not there. That is a hard, hard reality to swallow. There is perfection. There is failure. And everything in between doesn't matter at all. That is what Paul is saying here. Say, yeah, but no, I'm telling you, I'm really close. Close doesn't matter at all. It doesn't win you a thing. You don't get a participation ribbon. That's not how this works. That's what Paul is saying here. Either you succeeded completely or you flat out failed. There is no in-between. Imagine for a moment. Picture, picture the person in your mind eye. The person. This might, be a, might have been a grandparent. Might have been a mentor. It might have been a coach. Might have been a teacher. Might be your spouse. It might even be your child. A lot of people, it's a grandmother, right? The person who is the most selfless, the most generous, the most giving, the most wonderful, kind, godly person you have ever known. The person who to you was a saint on earth. Picture that person for one moment. Left to that person's own devices, what Paul is saying here, not making this up, left to that person's own devices, that person is going to hell. I believe this is like the hardest doctrine in the Bible. We can fight about all sorts of things, but when close isn't close enough, that gets scary. Because no matter how much we believe in Jesus, believe that he's all we need, there's still that part of us that wants to justify our own existence. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. Whether you think you're good, whether you think you've already arrived, whether you think you're good enough or that you're close, doesn't cut it. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that reality brings us to our last group. And it's a group um, that doesn't, doesn't need to be told that good isn't good enough, that close isn't close enough. It's a group who can be told that Jesus died for your sins and their response isn't to say, no, I don't need that. I'm good right where I'm at. Their response is actually to say, no, you don't understand. I'm too far away. No, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the life I've lived. You don't understand. I don't deserve a second chance. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve to be loved. 
There's a song that's been going round and round and round in my head. I, I feel terrible for my wife, for all those who have to be around me in the office because I hum and I sing quite a lot. And the lyrics of this song, I think, encapsulate this group of people who would say, yeah, no, but I'm too far away. Lyrics from a guy named Zach Bryan. And um, they're a little... They're a little hard to hear, and I kind of went round and round on whether to share them, but I think that I should, so I'm going to. This song is about a a young woman in a small town who's given up hope on having hope. She's settled um, for emptiness. She's settled for sadness, and the the lyrics go like this. There's so much whiskey in his Coke It'll make her nose spin. But she swears that his love is a godsend. And she ain't known God since she was a child. She used to play in the yard and she would dream of one day until the world came around and took her dreaming away. Told her how to dress and act and smile. And the chorus goes like this. She'll never make it out alive of that small-town bar scene where small vices kill big dreams. He'd take you home, but he's too drunk to drive. And that last line is the one I really, really wrestled with. Is that appropriate? And yet, I think that it's that last line that has so haunted me because there's something that is so sad in that line. Even a low, empty relationship can't be lived into because of vice. Drunkenness has, has eliminated the possibility of it. These lyrics, maybe they don't do a thing for you and you're utterly confused why I would read them. Maybe you can connect with them more deeply than I possibly can because you've lived into them, but... I think they describe the experience of so many women, of so many men who have settled, believed the narrative that they are too far away for redemption. And so, well, this is, I guess, good enough. Small vices that kill big dreams, I guess I'll just live into those because what other choice do I have? I might as well make the best of a horrible situation, right? Wherever you might find yourself on the spectrum here this morning, um, no matter if you think that you've got your spiritual checklist crossed off, that you do what you're supposed to do, you come to church, you do the things, you got the muscle memory, you're good, whether you think you're somewhere in between and that that's good enough, whether... You think to yourself every time that you hear that you're welcome at church, you have this voice in your head saying, if only you knew. If only you knew my past. If only you knew my story. If only you knew my struggles. You wouldn't think that I was so welcome here after all. No matter where you find yourself, no matter what yeah buts are going through your mind, one, I'm glad you're here. The two, Jesus extends his hand to each and every one of you. Final illustration, final illustration. You're swimming from here to Japan, okay? 
Three of you are swimming from here to Japan. It's about 2,400 miles, give or take. One of you is not a very good swimmer at all. You can kind of dog paddle. The next one of you is pretty good. You've done like some triathlons. You swam in high school, that kind of thing. And the last one of you is like Michael Phelps. Okay? You're like Olympic world record holder, excellent, off the charts, genetically gifted, all this stuff, right? Short legs, huge torso, big feet, big hands, the whole thing. One of you, the one who's bat, makes it a mile, and that's pretty good. I don't anybody ever swam a mile? It's actually pretty hard. That's kind of far, right? And you drown. The next person, by an absolute amazing feat of mental strength, makes it 100 miles. Can you imagine that? A person swimming 100 miles, the achievement. It would be on the news, it would be remarkable, and drowns. The third person, now we're talking, we're talking genetically gifted, six foot seven, 230 pounds of rippling muscle, makes it 500 miles from California to Japan. Unthinkable. You think it's a robot in a human body swimming in the ocean, punching sharks along the way, and drowns. Now, did your ability to swim, did how far you make it, did how many things you could achieve, did that alter how much or how little you drowned? See, the Apostle Paul, I I cut him off a little bit earlier um, in verse 23 and verse 24. When he says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, all of us, no matter how far you can swim, no matter what, yeah, but you're coming into church with today, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you find yourself, you need a Savior, no matter what. And the good news, the literal euangelion of the gospel, is that Jesus reaches out his hand and he says, take it, I will carry you the entire way from here to that island nation in the east. The good news of the gospel is that it is not, your salvation is not predicated on how capable you are, on what you've done, on how excellent of a swimmer you are. None of us can make it. None of us. But Jesus can, Jesus did, and Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Verse 28, Paul says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If you are here this morning and you believe you've got it all going on, that you've got it together, that you don't need help, Paul has another thing coming for you. If you believe that you are somewhere in the middle, that you're so close, Paul says close isn't close enough. But if you are in here this morning and you're saying and you've been saying to God, to your family, to your friends, yeah, but I am too far away for redemption. I cannot make it. You don't understand what I've done. God says, stop. Stop believing those lies. Stop believing that you are past 
the point of redemption. Stop believing that you are unlovable. Stop comparing yourself to your neighbors, to those who are sitting next to you in a pew and saying, I'm not like them. How could I possibly be given a second chance? How could I possibly be loved? Stop believing the lies. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come to give life and life to the full. Stop believing that mediocrity in life is all you are good for. Stop believing that grace, that a second chance, is too far away. It does not matter. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have failed, and yet God's grace extends to all anyway. When God looks at you, if you believe in Jesus, God sees his son. He sees his son on the cross dying for your sins, and he loves his son. So if you believe in his son, then when God looks at you, he loves you. You might be saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I'd be saying, yeah, but, and I won't argue with you anymore, but I will let Dane Ortland have the final word here. Same guy, same book, Pastor Russ uh, spoke about last week. You can call it a coincidence if you believe in such thing. I've also been reading this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And Ortland wrote this. We'll end with this. He wrote that fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that, given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know, most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the the, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. No, you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Stop believing that you are past the point of redemption, that you are less than somebody or anybody else. We are all equally broken. We all equally fall short of the glory of God, and we are all equally offered life and life to the full. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, as difficult as it is. Lord, wherever we are this morning, I not only trust and pray that you would meet us, 
Lord, but I also pray that you would begin something new within us. Those of us who think that we are irredeemable, that we are beyond redemption, that we are beyond being loved. Those of us who think that we can earn it on our own. Those who think that we've already got everything checked off. Lord, wherever we are this morning, life and life to the full awaits us. And all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is trust you. All we have to do is have faith. Faith that you were who you said you were, that you were fully God, fully man, and that your death on that cross and your resurrection offers us a chance at redemption, offers us a chance at a second chance, and offers us love, grace, freedom beyond imagination. Or as we come to the table, would you be so very present with us and so very present to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.